That was good. <laughs> to all the moose lovers out there, Gary was just kidding. And I personally have never killed a moose. My father, on the other hand, used to bring moose and elk and antelope and even bear home to, uh, to eat. Bear bologna. I was raised on bear bologna. That explains so much, doesn't it? <laughs> You've been saying to yourself, oh, what could be the, the cause of this? And it's, it's bear bologna. Let's just get it out in the open. I feel so much better about this, sharing my pain with you all. Okay, let's get serious. Grow up, people. Come on. Uh, we started a series last week. John started a series. It's on truth. And this is truth part two. Now, the big point uh, that I took away from last week's message was this. You cannot have freedom without the truth. Truth brings freedom. And if we say that truth brings freedom, we have to ask the question, freedom from what? Well, freedom from lies. Because lies, dishonesty, is the primary source of the problems in your life. Can you believe that? I had a spiritual director one time, and I asked her about temptation, how she dealt with temptation. Uh, She was a celibate um, Catholic nun. And I asked her what it was like to lead a a life without sex. And uh, we had a good relationship, so I could ask these honest questions of someone committed to celibacy. And she said, well, it's not that hard once you realize that behind every single temptation is a lie. Every single temptation that you face is based on a lie. And uh, she said, once you understand and see the lie, the temptation has almost no power over you. Because the truth has set you free. Most of our problems have to do with the lies that we believe. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, here's the problem. I think down deep inside, all of us know that fact. We believe that. The truth has an inherently liberating power. But yet, we are a people prone to self-deception. The Bible tells us that we're a people prone to self-deception. Isn't that ironic? The deepest desire of our heart is freedom, and yet we're a people prone to self-deception. And I want to ask the question, why? And look at six reasons why we are prone to self-deception. Number one, sin is pleasurable, and it is painful to give up. The Bible tells us that. It's pleasurable for a season, and then, of course, it's destructive. It's the pleasurable for the season part that makes it hard to give up. We have this amazing thing we do when we're caught in sin, and we don't want to give it up. It's called rationalization. It works like this. The will decides to hold on to a particular sin, gets on the phone to the mind and says, hey, I need your help with a little problem we've got. I've got this sin we're all really enjoying. Yeah, that's the one. Anyway, you're really good at this stuff, so how about you come up with some very good-sounding reasons why it's not sin? Get back to me ASAP. And the mind goes to work. And I'm going to read you a couple of the ones that I've actually heard. And I I could go on, and I'm writing a book called Out From Behind the Mask. And in that book are a whole lot of these rationalizations. I'm just going to give you two of my favorites. 
I know sex before marriage is normally wrong. Now, that's the problem right there. We've got that normally just crept somehow into that sentence. I know sex before marriage is normally wrong, but we love each other and we're deeply committed to each other. And since commitment is the very definition of marriage, then we're really already married. So since sex is a part of marriage, it would be wrong of us not to enjoy it. And I say, I actually said this, that's a very interesting concept. Since you're so committed, why not just make a public statement of that commitment and get married? We're not that committed. (laughs) Seriously. Here's my favorite. This is brilliant. You can't, how can you argue with this kind of logic? This came from a single girl in Canada. I just thought I'd better tell you that. It's a long time ago. Someone else, somewhere else. Nobody in this building. Everything's okay. (laughs) Relax. You relax. At no time in this message will a member of this congregation be injured. I know it is wrong for me to be sleeping with my boyfriend, but he is not a Christian. And I am afraid that if I quit, he will feel rejected by God. For the sake of his soul, I have to keep doing it. I heard this. The the human mind is this amazing thing that when the will decides to do something wrong, the mind is right there to help. Rationalization. Listen, the intellect is a wonderful gift, but it's fallen like the rest of creation. When the will decides to sin, the mind, apart apart from God's truth, apart from God's truth, the mind becomes an enemy. And when this happens, the only solution is submitting your thinking and your mind to the truth of God that's found in the Bible. Otherwise, we can be hopelessly self-deceived. And by the way, this is best done in submission to someone who loves you, but who loves God's truth just as much. Or maybe even more, if that's possible. And it helps if that person knows the Bible well. Any questions? Number two, facing the truth will mean change. Applied truth always brings change. You can have change without growth. It's called fashion. But you can't have growth without change. Growth always involves change. Growth equals applied truth. Psychologists tell us that only a small percentage, less than 20% of people, like change. The rest of us are inherently set against it. Even good change. This explains why, as Mike said a few weeks ago, our youth pastor, more than 80% of people become Christians before they reach the age of 18. Because as life goes on and we get older, we we become more and more and more resistant to change. Which really means we become more and more and more resistant to truth. Because truth always equals change. Why do we fear change so much? This is, I'm going to actually ask, just take a moment and have some fun. Why do you think, as part of our nature, we fear change so much? What is it about change 
that unsettles so many of us. Why, good. Okay, why is it not safe? Because it's unpredictable. Because inherent in change is not knowing what the future holds. It is uncertainty. I remember when I was in law school in Canada, the girl that I loved deeply uh, dumped me in a, in a Dear Mark letter, which, by the way, I earned the dumping. Uh, I came by the dumping honestly. And this was in the days without cell phones and without all sorts of things. And she was a long ways away in the U.S. and I was up in northern Canada. And uh, that's redundant, northern Canada. The frozen north, that's also redundant. Uh, and, and she dumped me and, and I, I was just completely torn apart. So I was talking to her on the telephone for a period of about two to three weeks to see if it could be worked out. The anxiety of not knowing what was going to happen in that relationship meant I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping and I was completely torn apart about not knowing what was going to happen. When it finally became official that we were over, the sorrow was a relief from the uncertainty. The actual pain of the loss was easier to accept than living not knowing what was going to happen. Change is uncertain. Underneath of our fear of change is a greater fear of uncertainty. Change is uncertain. How many times in the middle of a crisis have you heard, let's say uh, a woman loses her husband, he dies, and she's just absolutely overcome with sorrow, but you will hear her say this in every single case. I just don't know what I'm going to do. Hello? That's uncertainty. I don't, I don't know what the future is going to hold. The fear of uncertainty can be just as great as the pain of the loss. We crave certainty. And God's truth is the only answer to that craving. And his promises for your future are the only answer to your fear of uncertainty and your need to know. Number three, truth equals change, and change equals increased responsibility. If you're going to grow as a Christian, it will be from one level of personal responsibility to another. Maturity does not equal increased irresponsibility. Maturity means you must live the truth that you just discovered. Applied truth brings change. Unapplied truth jades the heart to truth. That was really smart. That just came to me. We say that again. I've already forgotten it. Applied truth brings change. Unapplied truth jades us to more truth. It's really a frightening thing. If you don't obey the truth he's given you, the next time he gives you some truth, you will be numb to it with an ever-increasing numbness until hearing the truth means nothing to you. That's true. That is true. We, we have got to respond to the truth we're shown. The Bible says that God's word goes out and it never returns void. It always has an effect, but it's not always an effect for good. If you hear God's truth and apply it, it will have an effect for good. If you hear God's truth and ignore it, you will become jaded to it. That is one of the effects that it will have. 
truth is so powerful. It always elicits some kind of response. Truth equals change and change equals increased responsibility. I'm thinking of the story of Jesus with the man at the pool of Bethesda. The guy has been there crippled for 38 years. 38 years. And he's come to the pool for healing, and he's been lying by the pool for, quote, a long time, unquote. Jesus introduces himself to this invalid with a strange question. What's the question that Jesus begins the conversation with? Do you want to get well? Duh. Excuse me, Rabbi, but boy, that's a boneheaded question. Why do you think I'm lying here? Jesus never asked a dumb question. And you know what? He wasn't good on small talk. Almost everything he said means something. Wait a minute. Everything he says means something. So when he asks the guy the question, do you want to be well? It means it's an important question. Why would he ask this guy who's been crippled for 38 years, do you want to be well? Why is it a relevant question? Anybody, why is it a relevant question? Once you have been sick for a long time, your sickness has become a part of your personality. You have so, and this is not a, we have to do this or we don't survive. Your personality adapts to the situation. But after 38 years of sickness, you have so adapted and become used to, to make it tolerable, to survive emotionally, you've become adapted to your sickness to the point at which your sickness has become part of you. It is now your identity. You're not a person. You're a sick person. You're an invalid. And healing is going to have, oh, almost unimaginable consequences for change. When was the last time you had a job? Oh, 38 years ago. What have you been living on for the past 38 years? Handouts and welfare? Hello? The purpose of welfare is to get people back to work, not to keep them on welfare. By the way, this guy, I mean, what's going to have to change? He might have to get a job. He's certainly going to have to find another place to live. He is going to live his he's going to leave his entire social circle. Healthy guys can't stay waiting to be healed. And more and more and more. And it's all increased personal responsibility. Same question to uh, blind beggars. Jesus did the same thing again. Here's what he's asking. When he says, do you want to be well? Here's what he's really asking. Do you really understand what you're asking for? Have you thought about what this healing will mean to your future? And here's the real question. What do you fear if you're healed? See, everything has a price. Change is the price. What do you fear if you're healed? 
Number four, facing our sin is psychologically painful. It's easier and less painful to stay in a lie than to embrace the truth. Why is facing our sin psychologically painful? Well, guys, it's really simple. Facing sin equals facing failure. I failed. And I've been failing for a long time. And facing failure equals shame. And shame equals low self-worth. And low self-worth is a threat to the self. And now we're getting down to the core of the issue. The self protects itself against anything and everything that threatens its preeminence. This is our human nature. Facing our sin is always a threat to our self. I've I've taught this before, but it needs to be said again in this context. Sin is nothing more than the choice of the self to be preeminent above all other selves. Hello? Sin is nothing but the choice of the self, the predisposition of the self, to be preeminent above other selves and, of course, preeminent above the ultimate self from whom all selfhood derives its existence. Sin is nothing but independence. Myself over him. My will over his. My glory over his. My pride over his glory. Without a true understanding of the role of self, And the role it plays in the Christian life, we will begin all of our understandings of sin under a false assumption. The self will do anything to avoid facing sin. This is our state before we came to God. We're so lost in ourselves. Listen to this. We're so lost in ourselves that God describes us as his enemies and objects of his wrath. This serious problem. Our self-rationalizations, our self-rationalizes. Now, God says, prior to coming to me, your self is so preeminent in your life, your self-focus, your self is so preeminent in your life that you're actually my enemy, and actually you're an object of my wrath. And our self-rationalizes this description of our nature as some sort of gross exaggeration. Now, here's something important. The unregenerate mind will not entertain the idea that it could possibly be opposed to God just by virtue of its self-focus. I want to say that again because it's a wonderful sentence. The unregenerate mind will not entertain the idea that it could possibly be opposed to God just by virtue of its self-focus, which really is the source of all sin. And it is what sin is. The things we do that are wrong, that's nothing. That's merely the consequence of the preeminence of self. Me first makes perfect sense to us. And the Christian message of original sin and that our utter hopelessness to morally improve ourselves is foolishness to the natural mind because the natural mind is governed by the self. We have a serious problem. The self survives conversion. 
please don't buy the theology that says once you become a Christian, your self-nature is completely gone because it isn't. You know how I know it isn't? I've been pastoring for 30 years. You know how I know it isn't for sure? I know me. Myself's not gone. It fights every day. I fight myself. Thank God me and God fight myself, or I would lose all the time. Self-survives conversion. It's a deeper way of saying that sin survives conversion as well. And just because we can now see sin for what it is doesn't mean the battle is over. The self continually fights for preeminence. The Apostle Paul describes the battle this way. I do not understand what I do. (laughs) For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it's not me who's doing it. It's sin living in me. Now, this is an interesting thing. It's no longer I myself who do it. It's sin living in me. There's now two natures after conversion. Thank God. Thank God. There's still myself struggling for preeminence. That will die the split second after I die. But now there's this new nature living in us. Thank you, Jesus. There's this seed of God. There's this divine nature. Beyond his nature, it's him by his spirit living inside. And he is standing beside the will saying, you can do it. You can do it. You can say no to that. You don't have to put yourself first. You don't have to be governed by those fears. You don't have to be governed by that craving need for preeminence. You have my love. I'm all you really need. I'm everything you've ever really wanted. I'm the truth. I will set you free. I will, I will live inside of you with such love and power that your will can choose what it could never choose before. I'm here for you 24-7. You wake up in the night in fear I'm here. I'm your new nature. And if you'll cooperate with me, I will take over your entire personality, not to destroy the self, but to turn it into everything it was designed to be. Now, will you trust me? Now, will you listen to me? Because I'm going to tell you the truth that you need to hear to be free. Will you cooperate with me? And he's persistent. His love is annoyingly persistent. He will never give up. He will never give up on you. No matter how strong your self, he will never give up on you. And he will stay resident until the minute that you die. And then you will be free of your self-focus and you'll live in adoration of his beauty forever. And you will be everything you were ever designed to be. And the joy, listen to me, the joy of being you will captivate your heart for eternity. Because the glory revealed in you being you as you were designed to be is so extraordinary and so unique and so overwhelmingly beautiful that you will take pleasure in yourself and it won't be a selfish pleasure. It will merely be acknowledging the truth of God's perfect design. Oh, God, this is brilliant. This is great stuff. It's all coming. I mean, this is all like it wasn't in the book. It's not there. This is great. This This is what he has designed us for. And his truth only serves that purpose, that we will be set free of our self-focus to fall into the wonder of who we were really designed to be. And then we can take pleasure in ourselves because it's been purified 
by pride, from pride, by the love of God, it's been purified. Oh, what a... Is there any other religion in the world that offers this? They all, the rest of them, offer one form or another of do more and try harder. And this change we're talking about is not something we bring. We cooperate with his love and it brings change. Or I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. Man, there's a guy telling the truth. I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there beside me. But guess what? There's somebody else beside me. And that's the spirit of God living inside of me. And he can overcome all that. And he can set me free from that. But I have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. To cooperate with him in this process. Number five, and it's getting deeper. Truth threatens our pride because, see, underneath of it all, that's really what we're talking about. We're just talking about pride. Truth threatens our pride. The sin nature which Paul refers to is essentially the sin of pride. It's the exaltation of the self. And listen, pride has a vested interest in minimizing sin. Given the presence of the new God-centered nature within us, pride knows it is no longer in total control. And this creates a panic. It can't simply run the new nature out of town. Pride can't command the presence of God within you to leave. God's spirit within us and the new mind of Christ within us cannot be ousted by the power of pride. Thank God it's not that strong. But just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, pride can gain advantages through deception and lies. Evil didn't overcome Adam and Eve through force, but through deception and lies. Pride can protect much sin simply by minimizing it. This is a really important concept. Yeah, I know it's wrong. Pride says to you, yeah, I know it's wrong, but it's just a small one. I know it's sin, but it's it's just a little one. Pride says, yeah, it's a sin, but you're working on it. Look, it's a sin, but it could be much worse. Look at Bob. That guy's a mess. You're way better than Bob. Oh, we just minimize this. I, I don't mean you, Bob. Wait a minute. Maybe that's prophetic. Maybe I do mean you, Bob. No. Pride will tell you all sorts of lies to minimize the problem. The power of pride must never be underestimated. Okay, let's go to one that's more fun. That was deep. Number six, grading ourselves on the curve. I just love this one. Grading ourselves on the curve. When I grew up in the 50s, born in 1951, started to go to school, there was a, when you did a test, there was just only one possible thing, pass or fail. And if you got 50% or better, you passed. And if you got 50, 50%, 49% or less, you failed. I mean, period. That's just all there is to it. That's the way it is. 
brutal. Simple. The 1950s, one rotary telephone per family. You're calling your your potential girlfriend and your hands are shaking so bad that when you turn the little rotary dial, you get six digits in and you're going for the seventh digit and then it flicks and goes back like this. You got to start all over again. It's a a self-control training device for every home. 14-inch black and white color TV, two channels. Black telephone, black television. You had had the postal service for instant communication. (laughs) It's an oxymoron. It was a simple world back then. So you passed or you failed the test. Then some educator, because they're paid to do it, said, Wait a minute. This isn't fair. What if the teacher's really good at creating a very hard exam, but really poor at teaching you the material? Is it fair that everyone in the class should fail? And of course it isn't. So they came up with this thing called the curve. Let's take a look at it. All right. Now, this is called a standard bell curve. See this little green thing? I love this. Okay, so the people under the curve are all the people that took the test. In every class, there's a winner. Now, we call him a winner, but when I was young, we called him a wiener. (laughs) Everyone hated that guy right there. He had the social skills of a dog and no friends, but he got 100% on every exam. He was laughed at and ridiculed, and now he owns a dot-com company. And he's still socially awkward, but he has a fleet of several jets. He has a supermodel for a wife, and he flies around the world laughing at us. (laughs) We all know one of those. Then there are these guys. They're brilliant, but they don't touch him. But they're so brilliant, he hires them to run his company. They, too, each and every one of them has a jet. And a semi-supermodel wife because there's only really one super, supermodel. They have supermodels, not the super, supermodel. Okay? Then there's these guys. These guys. Whoa. Ouch. She flies around the world and has an entourage of that guy, who we're going to describe in a moment, as her toy. And this group is all women. And this group has two men in it, and they're down there, right there, the losers. But they're achievers. Let's not get it wrong. They're achievers, and they're going to do just fine no matter what they face in life. And they all, they all work for these guys, who works for this girl. These guys, these guys work for these girls. These guys are all slaves. They're men. Another redundancy. All right, now this group, this group is interesting. Coming from a woman, I'll accept that. Okay, these guys, they're, 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 they're good. They're good students, and they, they're employed by the women here, and ultimately by the woman there. And... Uh, they're doing fine. Now, we, we, this begins to create a problem, right? Now, this is, this is the 50s. So this is now the 60s. And this group here grew up underprivileged. They had a personal phone each. 
their own 19-inch color TV and the keys to the family car. So they, they're underprivileged because they're so distracted with their life. And they're all men, by the way. So distracted with their life that they can't study enough, and so they failed. But we shouldn't give up on them because this group of people ultimately are going to be the teachers. And, and they run the educational system. So because they're the teachers and they run the educational system, the guys are already in the educational system. The guys are, these, these guys in the educational system, no, actually the entire educational system came from these guys right there. And they have to take care of their own. So what they do is they have summer school. You failed, but you can go to summer school. And if you pass summer school, then you get to move onto the other side of the curve and you're good. Now these guys, all men, have a serious problem. They can't go to summer school. They can't get over here. They are going to fail the class. And they're going to have to take it again. Now this is wounding to their self-worth. We can't have that. So brilliant. Get this. We take these guys, and these guys go to summer school. They're going to be fine. These guys are not going to make it. So we take this group right here, and we make a special class. And they get their, and they get their own test. Now their test is also a bell curve. So once we apply the bell curve to these guys, all these guys pass. And then these guys take summer school. And this guy right here is the problem. This guy, there is nothing we can do to save him. And you're thinking, what happens to this poor guy? Well, he was a jock. And he has a great high school football record. So, and he's really good looking. So he spends time with her in the jet. (laughs) Nobody loses. Nobody. Because the curve is at play. Thank God for the curve. How many of us have been saved by the power of the curve? Did you enjoy that? I really enjoyed that. Now, here's the point. I have one. When you grade on the curve, it really doesn't matter in any absolute sense how you performed on the test. Does it? You are simply being compared to the rest of the group. And you are safe as long as your performance is average. Right? And guys, whether you believe it or not, we have been brought up on the curve. It is the world in which we live. It has shaped our educational system and our understanding of of worth and position in society and everything else since the 1950s. It is part of our intellectual, sociological paradigm. So why don't we just apply that to life with God? Makes perfect sense. God doesn't grade on the curve. That's the problem. And the curve is how, this is exactly how our pride wants us to view sin. Apply the curve to your own personal problems and issues. And look, there's always somebody to the left of you on the curve. 
there's always someone you can look to the left on the curve and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And, and, it's, and now you're okay because you're not as bad as so-and-so. And I know what you're saying. I mean, on any bell curve, there is the last guy that, that, is, that is, it is bad on that curve. But he can look at human history and he can say, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Saddam Hussein. I'm not Emmanuel Noriega. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. There's always someone you can find worse than you. So thinking on the curve, you're okay. Problem. God doesn't grade on the curve. There really is absolute right and absolute wrong. Morals are not relative no matter what people tell you today. There is wrong and there is right. And pride will do anything to talk you out of that. Using the curve results in sin becoming relative and not much of a problem, really, when you think about those guys. Pride protects our sin by lying to us about the true nature of sin and by arguing that God graves on the curve and so should we. That's a sobering message. Okay, look. Let's just go through these for a minute. And look, none of this would be survivable but for grace. Yeah, yay is right. But for grace, we could not survive this message. This would be nothing but terrible bad news. And we would all leave here with our self-worth beaten down to nothing if we really applied the truth the way it is. But here's the grace message. God fixed the curve. He fixed the uncertainty problem. He fixed the fear problem. He fixed the self-worth problem. So that it is possible to look at your sin, to look at your problems and your weaknesses and your foibles, not through the lens of condemnation, but through the wonder of grace. That God really has forgiven me for all of this and he's committed to my perfection. And there's not a judgmental bone in his body. Grace is what makes it possible to face the truth. Grace makes it possible to actually thank God for the truth. Grace is not just the power to change. It's the power that brings change. Viewed through the lens of grace, the ultimate truth, the most important truth of all is grace. Viewed through the lens of grace, all of these things we can look at safely without self-hate, without even discouragement. Because his love swallows up all of those negative emotions. His love is the solution to everything. Does it make sense? So we can. We're in a safe place right now. Because this room is full of his presence and his love and his truth. And we can look at ourselves honestly in a safe place Where no matter what we see, it's okay because it's been forgiven. And it's okay because he's at work protecting and changing and loving and reassuring. We can look at the true things we need to see in ourselves so that we can grow. Because we're in a safe place with him. It's okay. 
So in that context, I want you to ask yourself some questions. Just close your eyes for a minute. I'm going to read out these headings again. And we'll just ask ourselves, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me on this issue? And he's not going to say something to you on every single issue. And I can't tell you what he's going to say to you. But he'll say something like, yes, this is an issue for you. Pay attention. Or he'll say, don't worry about this one. It's not your issue. But when he does show you something or quicken your heart or say, yeah, you need to pay attention here, then truth seen must be truth applied, which means embracing change. Holy Spirit, please apply this message to our hearts in a way that will bring great hope for growth and change. And will not bring any shame whatsoever because shame is just pride's tool, the devil's tool. But please speak to us to apply this message so we don't leave here with ideas. We leave here with applied truth. Sin is pleasurable and it's painful to give up. Is there a pleasurable sin that you've been holding on to that you just don't want to give up because it brings you some sort of comfort? Holy Spirit, if there's a pleasurable sin we're holding on to, would you please show it to us? And I'm not just talking about sins of the flesh. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's critical spirit. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's self-centeredness. Whatever. Holy Spirit, please show us if that's what's going on. Facing the truth will mean change. Applied truth always brings change. Holy Spirit, if, if we've got a problem with fear of change... Uncertainty for the future. If we think better the trouble I know than the trouble I don't know. If that's how we think, Lord, please speak it. Do you have a fear of uncertainty that's keeping you from growth? Number three. Truth equals change. And change equals increased responsibility. Is there a responsibility that you've been running from that God wants you to assume? Husbands, are you loving your wife the way God wants you to do it? Wives, are you loving your husband the way God wants you to do it? Increased responsibility. Are you afraid of it? Admit it. If you are, just admit it to God. Ask for his help. Number four. Facing your sin is psychologically painful. Facing sin equals facing failure. Facing failure equals shame. And shame equals low self-worth.
Are you afraid to face your sin or your failure because you'll believe you are a failure? You're not a failure. You cope with failure. Truth threatens pride. To what degree is pride operational in my life? I was going to say, do you have a problem with pride? But we all have a problem with pride. And that's the first role of honesty. To what degree do I have a problem with pride? We all have a problem with pride. But is it a big one? Is it real strong and makes many of my choices for me? Do I recognize it for what it is and hate it for what it is? Or do I kind of like it? Pride protects sin by minimizing it. Yeah, I know I have a problem, but it's a small one. Yeah, I know I have a problem, but I'm working on it. Yeah, I know it's sin, but it could be much worse. Conviction. Six, Lord, if we're grading ourselves on the curve, Holy Spirit, if we're grading ourselves on the curve, would you please just show it to us so we can stop? Holy Spirit, what do you want to say about about anything that you've revealed? What do you want to say to us right now? What do you want to say to me right now? Amen. Why don't we end with some worship, Josh? Band's going to come, and we're going to have a few songs, and and, uh, I'd like the prayer team to come on up. And... um, Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, Gary just pointed something out. He's really right. Um... Listen, guys, I don't know about you, but I don't know how anyone could sit through this message and not have some issue that arises. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just telling what I believe is the truth. We all have a problem on one of these somewhere. It's human nature. It's our struggle. It's what it is to grow. And you need a, some of us need someone to pray with who can lay hands on you and say, God's committed to your growth, and I'm going to pray right now that his spirit increases his strength within you to make the choices that lead to freedom. Now, some don't need that, but others do need that. And if you need that and you miss it, you miss something important. So we have this opportunity at the end of pretty well all the messages to come and apply the message in a prayer context.
And uh, I'll pray with whoever wants to be prayed with, and the team will pray with whoever wants to be prayed with. And, or if you've got a, a health problem or a financial problem or a relational problem, I mean, whatever you're facing, this is a place to get help. If church isn't a place to get help, what are we here for? So I'd like the prayer team to come and... Um,